Today, we're talking with Jerry Mikowski, who is a self-described trust advisor and muse. Jerry helps organizations understand trust. He has written in the past for Esther Dyson, the futurist, and he has advised organizations large and small. Jerry now resides in Oregon, but he's been a Silicon Valley luminary, and I've been following him for a decade. He is a most original thinker and keen observer of human behavior and technology. I'm sure we're going to have a lot of fun listening to Jerry's uh, musings. Uh, we'll discuss how Jerry views trust from different perspectives. We'll also discuss his efforts for the brain uh, and how to create a mind back for curated memory. He'll get into that, and you may be interested to follow that and create your own. So let's begin. Hello, Jerry. Hey, Jeff. Uh, thanks for the invitation. This is, uh, I'm looking forward to our conversation. Great. Jerry, you've been thinking about trust uh, for a long time. Can you explain what you mean by trust and why in this era of interconnectivity is more important than ever? You bet. Um, this whole thing started for me when I was a, a tech trends analyst for about a dozen years. Uh, kind of, I, was, I was on deck and my boss was one of the celebrities of the dot-com era and I was writing her newsletter and helping her coast a, a big conference called PC Forum. And I realized in the middle of that period, I put it somewhere around 94, 95, as the internet starts to show up, I realized I didn't like the word consumer. And I was wondering, like, why does this word make my skin crawl? And I followed that. That was like a thread sticking out of a sweater. And I pulled on that thread, and the sweater came apart. And the thing that everything pointed to was trust. That as we consumerized the world, we broke trust. We broke a lot of the bonds of trust. So your job as a good consumer is to buy more stuff, own more stuff. Uh, you know, he who dies with the most toys wins kind of mentality. Um, and that cuts away things like sharing. So suddenly we have the sharing economy, which is lovely because now we're sharing stuff. And that means you get to maybe meet a neighbor you didn't get to meet before. So, so that, that was kind of the surface part of it. And then the more I pulled on trust, the more I realized that we've been designing all of our institutions from a basis of mistrust, that we really have lost faith in humans. And so we're busy doing things. We're busy coercing them into doing the same thing which eliminates the genius they naturally bring with them, uh, cuts away the kinds of activities they would have with each other that you know, lead to building trust. So what I love about this era of interconnectivity, and, and you guys are doing a, a great job of tackling it, is that even though um, I've got a kind of a, a cynical view of the present, that we're at a, at a nadir of, uh, of trust, and I don't mean Ralph, I mean like the bottom or and by the way, it could get a lot worse. We're, we're not anywhere near the, the possible bottom between humans. Um, but we're at, a, we're at a low ebb of trust. And all these ways of connecting with each other are leading us through like a little electronic back door to try to begin to rebuild these little fibers of connection that build trust and build relationship and build community and all those things. And a whole lot of, you know, heavily left brain, mechanistic, paternalistic folk have built an environment that's really designed to sell us more ads and, and more stuff. But you know what? It also connects us. So it, it's, it, it's a sword that cuts both ways. And so I love the fact that people, you know, we, were, we are, my wife and I are super hosts on Airbnb. Actually, we moved a couple of years ago to Portland. But when we were in San Francisco, we became super hosts. And we love the people we got to meet from, you know, from hosting. 
uh, in our house. And that, they were people we would normally never have gotten to meet, and they would not have gotten to know our neighborhood. So that's, that's one of the kinds of benefits of, of interconnectivity. Um, but for me, this, this notion of trust is actually, um, you know, all of us are trying to, or some of us are looking around trying to figure out what is the linchpin that I could describe to people that might fix a lot of the world's problems. Is it like the 2% solution? Is it uh, everybody should become a for benefit? Is it, what, what is it, right? And I actually think it's trust. I think trust is one of those topics that we take completely for granted. And yet when I open the conversation with people, they haven't thought about it very much. And we can pretty rapidly get to some things that are news to them that they haven't considered about how you know, institutions are designed, uh, et cetera. So if you go look in, in a dictionary or just ask people to define trust, often it's about something like predictability. I trust that you will do the same thing you did yesterday, tomorrow. I trust that you will, you know, uh, and there's a part of it that's about intent, which is um, I trust that you will act in my best interests. But it doesn't have to be that way because I trust that Donald Trump is going to say something that isn't true, you know, five times today. And that has nothing to do with his good intention. Um, but I can trust that, right? You, you can trust that Dr. Ebel is going to try to kill Austin Powers every time and fail because he's incompetent. That, that weirdly is a form of trust as well. So that part is just about predictability. Um, and I think that, that many people stop there and don't peel back the layers of this onion and start thinking about, well, how does trust play in our institutions? What, how does this work? You know, if, if you look at the survivors of the dot-com implosion, if you look at uh, Google, uh, Amazon, and uh, a couple other companies, and there's one other that I wanted to use as, as an example, um, uh, eBay. Basically, without humans putting in some gestures of trust, all of those organizations wouldn't exist. Amazon without reviews uh, would have been the Barnes and Noble bookstore. Um, Google without forward links, without PageRank, would not would be AltaVista, right? So, so all these things really relied on trust, but don't say so out loud. Um, so, I think the more you the more you chip away at this topic of trust, the more interesting it gets. You know, this is fascinating. Um, you may be aware, uh, Jerry, that um, IBM just acquired Red Hat. Right. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. uh, the CEO of Red Hat wrote a book, Open Organization. And, and, and some people are saying, actually, uh, Red Hat acquired IBM. I mean, the culture of the open organization is what Red Hat is bringing to IBM. Do you see this idea of an open organization where not only the people who are employees of the company, but everybody in the value chain is contributing in a way, in an open way, to improve innovation, to improve uh, services to and create win-win situations. Do you see this as an example of uh, organizational trust? So what a lovely opening question. I just have to say, Jeff, that you, you just like opened a couple doors in, in, in my mind that, uh, that I'm going to go through. Um, we wonder why employees are not very engaged, right? Uh, lots of people do, and, and companies do all sorts of things to try to engage their employees. Part of the problem is that most employees in American corporations are sitting inside of the most autocratic, hierarchical, damned organizations anybody's ever come up with. Most of them um, are completely top-down. The, the CEO thinks he mostly, and every now and then she, but mostly he is God. And, you know, what he says should just get enacted. And nobody has agency. Everybody's, like, flailing around competing with each other to make their way so that they can be the top banana. 
and tell everybody else what to do. And what's happening right now is that people are rejecting that. Um, millennials are like, eh, no, I need to see some meaning and purpose in what I do. Uh, other people are like, hey, you know what? I would produce a lot better if I had a sense of agency and capacity and if I were freed to go do what I'm good at. And companies are responding to it. And IBM is this super fascinating case study because it has gone through many different uh, revisions of culture over time. And I, I remember interviewing a guy named uh, uh, Bob LeBlanc, who was in charge of software back in the day uh, at IBM. And I was interviewing him about the advent of open source software at IBM, where when I began as this tech industry analyst, IBM was the 600-pound gorilla in the room. When IBM said something, we all jumped and wrote a flash report and FedExed it to our clients because what, what, what IBM was doing moved markets and really mattered. And IBM was having a near-death experience. There, those of us in the analyst community were pretty sure that IBM was the dinosaur and it was going to keel over until a small band of pirates inside of IBM got their programmers to start looking first at Apache, then at Linux, and then at, and then at their own assets to see what they might contribute into the open source communities. And they managed to save the company. They managed to uh, deliver uh, connectivity across seven different stupid platforms that IBM had at the time, where IBM had had a project for a decade trying to, trying to do its own interconnectivity across these platforms had failed. They dropped TCP IP on the platform, started writing toward Linux as a platform, and boom, suddenly you could decide, oh, I need transaction processing, so I need the big machine, or oh, I need inexpensive distributed processing, so I'm going to go down to the server. Anyway, long, long story, IBM is a lovely example of how this works. Microsoft has recently gone through a major, major shift in trying to understand how to not keep us prisoners to an office suite, but instead move into the cloud and move into cloud services, et cetera. You, you see it, right? But, but the hierarchical to autonomous shift is, I think, really, really important here. So um, I think part of what's happening here is, I think you're right, that Red Hat is a, is a cultural acquisition, that companies are trying to figure out how do they move into what one could call workplace democracy. That's, to me, one of the big umbrella terms here. Um, and workplace democracy is kind of a funny term because we also don't understand what democracy means. <laughs> it, it's funny. Um, we sort of seem to think that if only everybody in a country had a vote and used that vote, that that would be a perfect democracy. Uh, no, not really. Right? That doesn't imply yep. participation. It doesn't imply the will of the people has been heard. And it implies nothing except, you know, in a, lot of, in a lot of former Iron Curtain countries, everybody was forced to vote. And so you had like 98% voting and they were voting for the autocrat. Um, so we need to understand more what that means. Uh, there's also a lot of movements uh, like holacracy and uh, uh, hierarchy and uh, so on and so forth that are, and teal organizations that are experimenting with this. <clears throat> some of which are doing a good job of it, some of which are putting their feet in the, in the cow, cow dung doing it. So um, I think that the progress is sort of a little slow. Uh, this also then trickles back to ownership structures. And, you know, ESOPs, Employee Stock Ownership Plans, is 1970s right. thinking. Now it's right. like, well, how do we create a worker-owned co-op and go do yeah. this, you know, go do this lightly on earth? So that conversation is happening a lot. Um, friends of ours from Portland just got written up in the New York Times. They run something called Zebras Unite. And they're talking about zebra companies because they wrote an essay a couple years ago that said, zebras fix what unicorns break. Hmm. And they said, you know, everybody's out there trying to, trying to be entrepreneurial and build the next unicorn company. Everybody wants to be the next billion dollar plus valued company. But these companies suck value out of places that need the value to stay local. 
What if right. I went to a conference a couple of years ago? What if what if Uber was actually a worker-owned co-op? And what right. if it gave drivers a lot more say in setting prices, managing a whole bunch of stuff that Uber keeps behind the curtain? That would be really interesting. So, so I think we're seeing this battle about openness, closeness, control, power, organizational structure. We are witnessing that play out right now in the marketplace in super interesting ways. And you know, th this battle is nowhere near finished, but I'm really happy that the parts of it that I'm a fan of that are actually based on trust, um, like workplace democracy, are in fact seeing the light of day. A lot of companies are waking up and going, hey, wait, if we do that, our people are on fire and then they start doing genius stuff and we like the genius stuff. So we need to figure this thing out. You know, this is wonderful, a wonderful thread because, um, you know, White House, who is the CEO of, uh, of uh, Red Hat wrote this book, Open Organization, in which he talked about, it's not crowdsourcing, it's not democracy. It is, you're setting up a structure or a system that enables this recognizing that you need the structure and i and you had mentioned tcpip uh, vince surf i'm sure you know mm -hmm. uh created uh, or co-created this system that was a system that enabled genius to come forth i mean think of all the websites and all the different organizations that are now on the web that was set up with a system that allowed for open thinking and trust right mm -hmm. so we've got a history of this and Maybe what we're we're hoping for is that this you this kind of open organization trust will become more in integral into the structures of work. Um, well, I think I me, think it's actually the future ahead. of work. I, I think this yeah. is the future of work, and companies that don't do this will struggle. They yeah. you know you, you can keep the autocratic facade as much as you want, but people are going to go where the employment is more interesting and more vital and more has more meaning, and that means they'll go elsewhere. Well, Jerry, um, let's take a look at, at the dark side since we've just explored um, kind of the positive. Uh, what do you see as inhibitors and hindrances for trust? For example, we've got cybercrime, we've got hacking of personal data, we have intentional fraud by organizations such as Wells Fargo. I can go on, but you get the drift. How should people approach trust in an interconnected online world when there is so much concern? about nefarious uh, activities or malintent. Um, how does that inhibit trust? Sure. Um, I, this, your question has lots of interesting layers to it because, um, and I'll, I'll go back, I'll go deep into the dark side for a second. Part of what's happened right now is that some players out in the, in the marketplace have figured out how to weaponize trust. They figured out that if you undermine trust in the public sphere, and this is frankly an old strategy, but they're, but they're now using new media plus old media uh, plus everything else they can think of to do this. But they have figured out that if you can undermine people's trust in science, people's trust in the press, people's trust in what, what is true and not true, what, was a, you know, what happened, what, what is a fact, um, that you can then provoke a lot of fear uh, and own the political sphere. And so globally, there is a sharp shift to the far, far right, not just to the right, but what to, to sort of ways of seeing and ways of thinking that we thought three years ago, five years ago, were like not to be contemplated. You, should, you, know, you, you didn't talk to those people. Those people are now on stage. And I think this is completely intentional because 
Um, when you look at you know, political strategies, this, this is one of the ways these things play out. And this creates a, a background radiation that's very interesting because on the one hand, in an environment where trust is being undermined, a high trust player will stand out more. So I don't think this means, oh my God, we're all doomed and dead and trust is just going to go away. I do think that the way you combat the undermining of trust, the intentional undermining of trust, is to act in a more trustworthy way, which means a whole bunch of different things. Not only the more, maybe the more obvious openness and transparency, uh, declaring trustworthy intentions and all that, but I think it, it has to go an awful lot deeper. Uh, that trust, it, trust is not a superficial thing. It actually sort of goes into the heart of what's happening. Um, another piece of this is that many companies have skeletons in their closet. Uh, things they've done badly, things they'd rather not confess to, uh, and a lot of people outside know about these things. And so companies are afraid to open their doors and be more transparent because, oh, crap, we're, you know, then we're going to have to pay, <clears throat> we're gonna have to pay the piper for stuff we haven't talked about for a long time. Um, at some point, I think uh, a couple of years ago, Deutsche Bank or somebody tried to do some kind of Twitter contest and they just, they, they got a shitstorm basically. Like people, you know, people showed up and pounded on them on Twitter and it was completely stupid of, of a company like Deutsche, which is one of the banksters more or less, to say, hey, let's, let's play together out in this open sphere without talking about that other stuff and trying to figure out, okay, okay, we, we really screwed up. How do we do that? And, and so many, many companies uh, have not been really frank with us. Uh, and have been doing things as like, like Wells Fargo did, like BW did. I mean, there's, there's sort of long-term, pretty substantial fraud going on that, that chief executives masked or even, even drove through the, through the pressure to create short-term results, which, by the way, goes back to the structure of organizations. Most CEOs are doing anything they can to get a fantastic golden parachute because their tenure is down to three to five years where it used to be the CEOs were in these positions for maybe a decade, right? So they, we have exorbitant CEO pay. So what they're trying to do is get a big payout and step off the carousel before the carousel blows up. That is not a good environment for trust, right? It's not a good environment for the workers. It's not a good environment for your customers, not a good environment for anybody. So if, 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 if executives start to talk about these things out loud, we might actually change stuff. One of the principal, you know, sort of forces that's, that's causing a lot of this stuff is short-term Wall Street pressure. And very few companies have, have sort of fought that. Uh, Porsche years ago said, we're no longer going to do quarterly results. We think it's stupid, right? Um, so if you can avoid being yanked around by Wall Street, which, which is unhappy with stable growth from a company just doing the same thing over and over again, Wall Street always needs something extraordinary to happen. Uh, we might actually be able to deliver trustworthy performance from companies and, and some, some reliability and predictability. Well, you know, Jerry, you and I are old enough to remember that uh, the misdeeds of executives in terms of uh, their taking advantage of people's trust last for decades. When I say the Ford Pinto, you immediately mm. know what I'm talking about. That was 1971. Mm -hmm. We're talking about a legacy of 50 years where a company does a misdeed, such as not replacing a part that causes the death of their customers. And that stays with them for a very long time, whereas with the Tylenol 
uh, problem that you remember the CEO came forward and they, they created a new kind of cap and they owned the anxiety that people had and they regained the trust. So Absolutely. I, I think the, we have lots of examples that are not interconnect, interconnectivity or technology focused that have just been good business practice that people like Drucker and others have been talking about for you know decades. So. If I if I can pick up on the Tylenol example you just you just mentioned because it's a it's a it's a case study of what to do in the case right. of crisis. It's a it's a very well handled crisis response. And what's interesting is that crises, oddly, are opportunities to build trust. Yeah. Without a crisis, and this is maybe an odd thought, without a crisis, I don't know necessarily that you're going to be trustworthy in a crisis. I can't tell. You've said the right things. You know, your, your mission statement says good things, but often those things are lip service. Over the years, it's been pretty good. But I don't know, you know, when, when things get tough, I don't know what you're going to do. So responding really well in a crisis, and that means not covering over the crisis, but admitting something happened, going about remedying it, making sure it never happens again, et cetera, et cetera, you then become a much higher trust entity, whether that's a person or a department or, or, or a whole you know, corporation. And I think that companies don't realize that. So, so they wind up doing crisis management in the, God, how do we bury this thing? And how do we stop it from being written into our Wikipedia page? And how do we stop the torrent of hate mail from coming in? Instead of, how do we actually figure out how to be more trustworthy? And I think this is a yeah. really important realization that few executives have gotten to. Well, you know, Jerry, we, we, if we can segue, um, when you look at AI and global exchanges like Alibaba, the basis of what Jack Ma is talking about is increasing trust among uh, strangers who are doing business globally on massive scale every day. Um, I mean, they, their ambitions and their visions are to create whole new economies based on trust. Um, so do you see... AI and global exchanges like Alibaba increasing trust in a daily basis, not on a crisis basis? So there's a couple monster issues here as well. I, I love your questions because every, every one of them cracks open something big. Um, Jack Ma is a fascinating individual. I've never met him. I've you know, listened to some of his speeches. He's deep and smart, super interesting guy, and has built something gigantic. Um, Alibaba is a mixed bag on trust. I mean, there is a whole lot of fraud and of, of many different kinds happening on Alibaba. Um, unlike Amazon, which normally warehouses things and touches the goods in, in between, Alibaba mostly connects you up to somebody and then steps out of the way more like eBay, right? Yeah. And yeah. that means that quality control is much, much, much more difficult uh, on everything from delivery to like what were the goods, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that I think they have not done a very good job of, of that. And to, in my mind, they don't have... Uh, that high quality, that high trust, a reputation in there, but do not underestimate Jack Ma. And then Alibaba, of course, is situated in People's Republic of China, which is a surveillance state, which is moving forward into becoming a full-fledged Black Mirror episode um, as we look at it, like today. T today, yeah. today, yeah. That, that the Black Mirror episode that caused me to stop watching the series um, actually exists as a thing in... Uh, in China today. And that's a, a very low trust environment uh, because what they're doing is they're trying to use technology to create high trust, right? And surveillance doesn't do that. Now, you can proxy trust away, which is partly what the sharing economy is doing a bit. Um, originally sharing economy, you know, uh, have you ever used couchsurfing.com? 
that, you know, I, I understood that Airbnb started out as couch surfing, so I haven't used it myself. <clears throat> well, I'm not sure about that. I, I think Airbnb's, their, their birth story, at least the story they tell, is that they were selling uh, inflatable bed in their living room to try to cover the rent because they weren't able to, you know, get enough work to cover the rent uh, in San Francisco. So, so th there was no point at which I think Airbnb was, there's no money changing hands. And couch surfing was a social network worldwide where right, you, right. You, you could stay in people's homes for no exchange of money on purpose. Yeah, yeah. And I stayed with a guy in Estonia, in Tallinn, Estonia. I stayed on his, uh, in his flat through Airbnb, but he had hosted 200 people on couch surfing. Amazing. That, that's really, really interesting. So, so it used to be, and, and the problem with couch surfing was, and I tried to use it once and ended up in, you know, at the end of the process just using Airbnb to book something, to build trust through couchsurfing, you had to tell your life story. You had to do a lot of social yeah. communicating. It took a lot of energy, right? And so that's part of the problem is, uh, you know, I think this, I'm forgetting who the famous person is uh, who said, you know, socialism sounds great, but I really want my evenings. Yeah. Right? That sounds right. That yeah. sounds right. So, Gary, so, in the interest of time, in the interest yeah. of time I, I, I love this, but I, let me move on a bit. Um, I, I, I would like you to talk about Jerry's brain, if you would. Happy to. Um, so as I said, I was a tech industry analyst for a dozen years. Uh, in 1998, uh, a little company came through of the 4,000 companies that I estimate I heard pitches from in that period. A little company came through with a piece of software called The Brain. And when I booked the appointment, I, you, know, you do a little eye roll and you're like, yeah, right. And then when I sat down next to the, the inventor of the software and he opened his laptop and started showing me this mind map, my, my brain, the wet one on board, was like, oh, wait, this is, this is very much how I see things, how I see things in my mind's eye. So I wrote about them. I brought them to our conference. I started using the software 21 years ago. In fact, we're now in January of 2019. In December of 2018, it was actually 21 years since I started using the software. Um, and I would not have imagined that I would still be using it. You can go browse my brain for free at jerrysbrain.com. Jerry with a J, no apostrophe, no space. So jerrysbrain.com, and you'll see a link that says launch Jerry's Brain. Click on that, and you can browse um, the, the one mind map I've ever created with this piece of software. So I did not create the software, but I have the world's largest man-made brain. <clears throat> and so 21 years of stuff is in one mind map, uh, you're in there, you've been in there a long time, you know, a whole bunch of things in there are in there from breeds of dog and races and types of horse to um, why did people, why do people support Donald Trump for the presidency to Jack Ma and some of his speeches. It's kind of all, all in there, anything that's worth remembering for me. And it's been a fabulous exercise at creating kind of a, what I consider a shared memory because I, I published my brain openly. I, I wish it was more collaborative software so I could actually be comparing brains with you and with others. Uh, right this minute, that doesn't really work. Uh, but it's been a, a really phenomenal exercise and I feel like my memory is better for having thoughtfully curated this long-term memory uh, for this long. Well, given that we're, gonna, we're supposed to live longer, our memories uh, naturally will degrade and having a brain like you're talking about may be a real. Well, real my, <clears throat> my wife likes to joke that she doesn't need to worry about me getting Alzheimer's because she can always turn to what I've already uploaded. <laughs> That's great. Um, now, Jerry, you've been a keen observer of tech and human behavior, not only as a consumer, we won't use the word consumer, as a user, mm -hmm. as an iterative, uh, you've, you've observed uh, 
um, the rise of different uh, groups of tech folks. Um, as you know, there is a lot of discussion now about AI and um, trust and empathy being built in the design of AI and many of the technologies. And uh, this is a big debate right now um, about whether or not this is making us more human, whether or not the design has been designed with empathy and psychology and anthropology, or has it just been designed by tech people who are doing cool stuff and are not aware of the effect on the common good? So uh, that's a very big question that I know you've, you, you're a keen observer on. So do you see trust and empathy in design increasing in importance? Are you optimistic that our AI assistants, the robots that we'll be working with, such as Siri and GPS and whatever evolve, will improve our human condition? Are you concerned? Where are you on this issue? Mm -hmm. um, so I, at home, we have both uh, Google Home and uh, Alexa, basically a, a an Amazon device, <clears throat> and we kind of use both. It turns out we use the Google Home a whole lot more. Uh, we use the, the Alexa device mostly as a timer, like, you know, to wake us up or to set, to, to cook the number, right number of minutes for eggs. <clears throat> but this also means we have an open microphone to these vendors, like in our home, which is, I think, a, a gigantic act of trust that may well be misplaced in the long term. But partly my job is to waste my time on technology so that other people don't have to. Um, and so I try a lot of leading edge things and I'm perfectly happy to have those things in the house at this point. Um, so there's in the background of that is there's the surveillance society, what is happening to our data, who's listening, how much are they doing with our data uh, that we don't know about. And that turns out to be usually uh, the answer to that is not, will not make you happy. There's another slice on this, which is, you know, is this technology being created to augment or replace humans? And mostly the conversation is about how do we augment human capacity because everybody who's building this, this technology knows that if we just replace all workers, everybody's going to freak out. But the work is mostly to replace people because augmenting human capacity, it turns out, is kind of difficult because humans are kind of difficult critters. We are ornery. We don't get the software right away. We get sick. We get cranky. We want vacations. We need retirement accounts. Our costs increase as we get older instead of like software, uh, you know, software plunges in cost over time. Uh, you know, the, 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 the financial dynamics of humans versus software, terrible. Humans look really bad in that comparison. So, so replacing humans is kind of where, where things are headed. And the business models reinforce that. And the business models are also reinforcing uh, more surveillance than more service, right? Uh, there's a, a three-word slide that I use all the time is stock or serve. Are you going to build a system that stalks us? And you can look right. up, go, go Google the stalker economy or surveillance capitalism. You'll find a lot of stuff out there. Or can you build a super intelligent system that is of great service? And here, for instance, is where I trust Google a whole bunch. I like it that when I'm in my car pressing buttons on my Android phone, that I, you know, in Google Maps, that when I search for something, the search that I just completed 30 minutes earlier on my desktop is the first result that shows up because it knows it's me. It knows I just did that. That's really pretty handy, right? That's a form of right. service. And as long as Google is not doing anything nefarious with my data, that's actually a big benefit in my life. It makes things a lot easier. So my, my fear here, a couple fears. One is that we don't have an empathic civilization. The fact that we have to teach 
people empathy, the fact that there's some, you know, there's, they're trying to teach empathy to kids in school when it turns out that we are born with empathy. It's just that school tends to socialize it out of us. Um, it, it, it worries me sick, right? Um, so that plus the, the dominant business models being how do I sell your data to sell you more stuff, all of that bodes poorly for our ability to trust where AI is going. Um, also, um, hidden behind you. you can create friendly AI as much as you want, and I think there's some very uh, earnest people and smart people trying to build that, but somebody goes behind the curtain and decides to create an AI that uh, will do something terrible to the world, and it's really, really hard to find out about it, to rein them in, to control it, to check their effort. And so I'm pretty worried about, about bad actors using all of this technology that could, in fact, create plenitude and comfort and great service for us uh, for nefarious purposes. And I, I don't, at this, at this point, I don't see how to stop them. Right. So I, I hear you on these levels that are dealing with the malevolence, possible malevolence, as well as the service, such as the GPS. I want to go a little deeper in getting your thought about, for example, these little artificial animals that are being given to elderly who pet the, the artificial animal and actually have a feeling of comfort from something that is an artificial intelligence that learns how that individual who may have dementia or may have Alzheimer's or maybe just lonely, that this is an empath, this is designed with empathy and that creates some kind of comfort in service and it, it becomes smarter as the user becomes more familiar. Or the fact that we can, in relationships, uh, you're really, you're, you're, imagine your assistant can take a look at all the conversations you have with your wife and be able to counsel you, Jerry, I notice in all these conversations you're doing this and your wife is reacting this way. Can you consider doing something a little differently? In other words, can we be made more uh, with design of empathy of the human condition, do you see that there is great opportunity here or maybe, again, malevolence in terms of changing human behavior? By the way, one of the people that we've interviewed is Margarita Hughes, who's part of the Stanford uh, B.J. Fogg's group oh, cool. with peace. Yeah. So they're doing human technology to decrease domestic violence, to yeah. peace. And they're looking at behavioral technologies to not only change behavior, but sustain change in something. That's an example of empathy being utilized uh, on a scalable level with artificial intelligence. So with all of those examples, could you give me your thought on that aspect of AI and empathy in terms of the experience of the users? Um, sounds great. Again, a, a lovely question with many, many different parts to it. Uh, so I know Margarita Kiwis pretty well. I know BJ Fogg really well. And every time I see BJ, <clears throat> I say, use your powers for good, like the Spidey rule. Right. Because, right. because he was a student of Robert Cialdini's. Cialdini wrote the book uh, Influence, which is all about how to make people say yes when they mean to say no, um, and which is in my brain under dangerous knowledge. <laughs> Yeah, um, And yeah. Cialdini's newest thing is persuasion. How do we prime people so that they're leaning into our decision? And, and I know that he has a bit of a conscience out there, but you know, people like Shane Parrish are making heroes out of Cialdini. And I'm like, this is completely dangerous knowledge. I'm not, I don't yeah. quite get it. 
So let me go back to the artificial animals for the, for, for the elderly. I have zero problem with a harp seal looking robot that you can pet and that will have, be warm or, or have a heartbeat or whatever. Those are great things. In fact, um, some people are experimenting with Siri um, as a really great alternative for autistic kids. Yeah. Right? That, yeah. that Siri is endlessly patient, um, totally non-judgmental, doesn't care about the level of specificity or repetition or anything like that. And is actually a, you know, a great remedy uh, in situations where you need someone who's going to be more patient than many humans could be. Um, and if you look at labor markets, you know, we're, we're all getting older and we're going to have fewer people to take care of elders. So we need to figure out some things there. Uh, Japan seems to be at the forefront of the application of technology to eldering uh, because they're the nation that has this, this, the, the sharpest demographic cliff basically going on. Um, so I think... I think there's a lot of efforts to do interesting things. Um, my fear is that we end up offloading a lot of these human connections. Uh, it turns out David Byrne, of all people, wrote a beautiful essay uh, pretty recently, in the last year or two, where he said, basically, we're designing a world where there will be no human interaction. You will be able to push a button on your phone or say something to your device that will solicit a vehicle that will not have a driver because robocars are coming pretty fast that will take you wherever you want. You'll be able to push a button that will bring you your favorite meal from nearby in a little robo vehicle that has a trunk that opens up only for you and gives you your, you know, your laksa. Um, you, your, your laundry, your house, all these things will be available without ever having to interact with a human if you so choose. We're headed right that way. I mean, one of the jokes of Silicon Valley is that all these young men starting startups are basically trying to replace their moms, right? Yeah. I'm going to automate food delivery, house cleaning, yeah. uh, chauffeuring, all the stuff that mom, mom used to do. Um, and, and I have to say, there's a big grain of truth in that. So I would rather that these startup folks focus on things like Margarita and others are focusing on, which is peacemaking. How do, how do we actually learn to connect with one another again? How can technologies help us? You, you mentioned briefly in, in framing one of your questions, what if, what if AI could help you realize that you did something wrong or not helpful in a conversation? And what if it could guide you toward participating better? Like, like hey, Jerry, you, it seems like you've been speaking 85% of this conversation. Uh, why don't you consider you know, being quiet for, for a while to hear what other people have to say, for example? That's really interesting, right? And, and yeah. so we have, a, we have a surplus of, of CPU cycles in the world. Why don't we use them to, to benefit the world in lots of different ways instead of, uh, instead of stalking us? So I, think, I think the opportunities are there. I am not sure the incentives are there. I think that the, the markets are still rewarding uh, stalking, not serving. Well, Jerry, I, I, I talked about you as a most original thinker and keen observer of human behavior and technology, and you certainly have fulfilled that promise in this conversation. Thank you. I'm so delighted to have uh, had this opportunity to talk with you. Uh, for those of you who are listening and who want to follow Jerry, he is prolific. and Please check out uh, what he is doing, and I'm sure that you will continue, Jerry, to make a great contribution to... Uh, not only the technology world, but humanizing the technology world and asking the right questions uh, Jeff, yeah. in terms of stalking and all of those other topics. It's very important. Thank you. Skeptics like you in, in, in the discussion. Thank you very much, Jeff. I appreciate the opportunity and the conversation and the nice opening questions you asked. I think that was a, a really good path through a lot of, a lot of these thorny uh, subjects. Terrific.